Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. You're going to be glad you did. Jasmine's guest is Joanne Kong, and she is this incredible vegan speaker, author, and most recently editor of the brand new book, Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. And she is just doing remarkable work. She's just one of those people who decided to turn the world vegan, and she's doing everything she can to make that happen. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Joanne. I think it's so funny that every week when we start the show, we're like, you're going to be glad you tuned in. Wouldn't it be funny if one week we're like, you're not going to be glad that you tuned in? It's No, like, it, w- it wouldn't really be that funny. Okay. And are you accusing me of starting off the show with a cliche? Because I know that I do, but you know... Come no, on. I'm not saying that. I actually am very excited about this chat with Joanne. And I think you will be too if you're listening to this. She's very passionate and knowledgeable. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up, or you can find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not yet a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a member of the Flock, please also join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And we have a great time at those meetings. We focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves. And we also chat with some really cool guests, uh, many of whom are recent podcast guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and if you are in the Flock, then thank you. And you can set up one-on-one meetings with me too. So if you want to do that and chat about your activism or your veganism. Just just to be clear, you don't have to do it. You have to do it. <laughs> in order to be, you can be a member of the Flock and not but talk to Justin. only Jasmine. if you talk if you, to me. But, but uh, it, you know, it's up to you. If you if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to, email Jen at Jen at ourhenhouse.org and we'll set that up. Oh, and since we're in October now, officially my very favorite month of this season of the of the year, we do have a very special series that perhaps you have listened to already. Every Thursday in October, we are going to be dropping a different episode of our four-part audio series of the brand new anthology, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, which is a book that I edited and I collaborated with Encompass on bringing it to life. And our publisher is The Wonderful Lantern. They are also the publisher of Joanne's new book, our guest today. So we love Lantern. Give them some love. And I hope that you tune in every Thursday on this same feed where you get your Our Head House podcast. That's a lot. It is a lot. I really feel that this Encompass series is going to take off. I think that I think it's going to be a thing. Oh, it's a total thing. Well, I know it's a thing, but I, I think that a lot of people are going to be listening to it and recognize or, or, and reading it and recognizing that it's a thing. I think it's going to bring attention to the movement. Good. I hope so. Jen Riley, who's our director of operations here, did a really tremendous job of really spearheading the audiobook uh, series. We have several, several farmed animal protection advocates on every 
every episode. In addition to that, every Saturday, you've got your Our Headhouse podcast. Every Tuesday, The Flock gets your bonus content. And then, of course, at the end of the month, we'll have a brand new Animal Law podcast. That's 13 things that we're publishing this month. So if you have some extra caffeine, send it our way because we're busy and we hope you're loving it. It's been an interesting week, though. It hadn't occurred to me. I'm going back for a moment. It hadn't occurred to me before, but we've been doing these first Friday flock meetings for a while now. And I ne- it never occurred to me that First Friday is a whole Catholic thing. Did you know that? First Friday of the month is like a... I don't really remember exactly what it is, but there's like all these special... So do you think people think it's a Catholic thing? I'm an atheist Jew. I, I didn't know that. I But... All right. My experience with First Friday is like sometimes towns will like kind of open up for the First Friday and there will be some kind of a festival or a celebration like... Oh, right. You know? in Portland. And then when I lived in Santa Cruz, they had it there. It was always really fun, like bands on the street. It was like a party. I loved it. Well, you know, so our flock meetings are very similar to that. We have bands. Uh, we, <laughs> we walk we, around. We send everybody we food. Outside. We, yeah. we send everybody food and they, we all eat it together. No, yeah. it's not like that. But I, I will say that after our last one last week, I said to more, I was like, you know, we really have the absolute best group of people. Like we really honestly do. We really do. I'm not like, I am absolutely so moved by the people who find community at our hen house. So thank you if you're part of that. And if you're not part of it, don't be intimidated because we'll think that you're the best too. (laughs) So it's been a little weird week. I have to tell you, I kept having these moments this week where I started, you know, I I like to text you and then right when something is happening, telling you about it, even though it hasn't fully happened yet. Like if I get to a restaurant I love, I'll be like, I love this restaurant before I even tried the food. Or if I see something on TV, I'll be like, oh my God, you won't believe before it actually, it's like five seconds in. And several times this week, I started to text you about something we should talk about on TOTS because it was like a really cool mainstream. TOTS is what we call Top of the show. Yeah, sorry. Top of the show. Uh, that, that we should talk about because it was like this really cool sort of like mainstream vegan mention. And like, as I'm sending you the text, it was like immediately followed by a wop wop from what I was watching. So like, for example, I had on the Today Show in the background while I was doing some mindless work. And there was this chef on who had a new book and the host said, oh, and you're vegan, right? And she said, and so I, so at this point I text you, oh my God, a vegan on the Today Show. And then the woman says, no, well, I, I'm plant-based. And I was like, okay, weird pivot. I'm texting you in real time. And then she gets to like her second recipe and it has eggs in it. I was so confused. And I was like, wait, this was going to be exciting, but why did she have to like clarify that she was plant-based and not vegan? What the hell does plant-based mean? And then she clearly, I mean, I know what plant-based means, but they're trying to change the meaning of it. They are. For me, it has always meant vegan. I know people were worried about it in the beginning that, you know, it wouldn't mean vegan. But to me, it always meant that I was never disappointed when somebody said something was plant-based or turned out to be vegan. But I have that, you cannot rely on that term because people use it in very icky ways. Well, okay. And so... Yeah, it was super weird and annoying, though I do think that this week, just to sort of provide an anecdote to that, antidote is the word I'm looking for. Thank you. I'm an editor. Tabitha Brown is who I love, is on a massive book tour, and she was on Good Morning America the other day, and I mean, she's a fabulous vegan, and total plug that I didn't even know I was going to plug until I started talking about this. 
the new issue of Veg News is out and Tabitha is my interview in it. So oh, right, you have right. to read it. You have yeah. to read my interview because she is like the real deal. Super amazing. Tabitha, she's just the absolute best. Literally I, I could listen the best. to her talk all the time. I just love the sound of her voice. Oh my God. She's just such a delight. I know. So, but she, but she was a bright light this week. Well, she's always a bright light, but she was a bright light, especially like given what I just told you about the Today Show. And then also uh, I was watching the Today Show. Okay. Apparently I watched the Today Show too much. Yeah. Like I was going to say, what are you, 70? But you know, I I didn't want to insult 70 year olds because I'm 70, but I don't watch the Today Show. Well, the they also had Bobby. Flay of course, on. on Sunday, on Sunday, you always watch Sunday morning as well. I do, yeah, I do. But they they had Bobby Flay on, and he is also like a celebrity chef. And I was shocked that he started talking about how his girlfriend. This was a different day, different segment. How his girlfriend is a vegetarian, and I was like, oh. I texted you immediately. Bobby Flay is talking about how his girlfriend is a vegetarian, how it's informed his cooking. This is so exciting. And then he was making a vegetarian dish. And I'm like, is it vegan? Is it vegan? Is it vegan? And he said, it's not vegan, I'm afraid. But and he went on and I was like, oh, so close. It's funny because I said to I said to Moore, I think that was kind of cool. He was almost apologizing for not being vegan. And she was like, well, I think that's bullshit. Because yeah, well, more, more doesn't suffer fools gladly. No, <laughs> exactly. But anyway, and then didn't you find something in the New York Times? Yes. So I have a third thing, which I attributed to much more nefarious motives than you did. And I think it coordinates with, with these other two stories. I saw this New York Times story. I think it was on Twitter. It was on vegetarian recipes. And so, of course, I opened it, and it was just a little intro to a bunch of different recipes. They looked fabulous, of course. They, you know, I'm never going to make them, but like loads of them looked like they were vegan. But, you know, they, it didn't have the full recipe, uh, but they looked like they were obviously vegan. You know, they were Middle Eastern, and, and they just looked so good. And so I clicked on one, but it turned out you had to, like, pay an extra fee to get the actual recipes. And you know, I love you all, but I don't love you that much. So uh, I wasn't going to pay the pay the money just to make sure that the information I was giving was completely accurate. <laughs> but here's the here's the kicker. I'm really sure some of these recipes were vegan. They never used the word vegan. It was all vegetarian, vegetarian, vegetarian. That was all they said about it. They didn't talk about, you know, the possibility of veganizing things that weren't vegan or that some of the recipes we're vegan and somewhere. I think, I think there's something afoot, like this whole like conflation of vegan with vegetarian. And I- I've just been seeing it a whole lot. Plant-based, I think is they're trying to conflate that with like, just like you eat a vegetable once in a while. So I really think there's an effort to, to mess with this language, uh, n- you know, like to, to emphasize vegetarian and, and diminish vegan because the word vegan has, you know, it, it had a huge popular episode that it sort of faded out of sight with this whole plant-based bullshit, which was probably another effort on the part of industry. But it's back, baby. I mean, you see the word vegan all the time. I think something is afoot. I think they're trying to uh, to diminish the use of the word vegan, the concept of vegan, because it's becoming a big deal. And and people are starting to pay attention that, that it's possible, that it's delicious, that it's necessary if we want to survive. Oh, I see a conspiracy at work. 
I actually appreciate the way you're looking at it, to be honest, because like it adds, it, it kind of contextualizes things for me in like a one step back, you know, like two steps forward, one step, it's sort of like the one step back or another way of looking at it is that saying, you know, first they laugh at you, then they get angry at you, then they go Whatever. vegan. Right. <laughs> that one. Like this is kind of the like, you know, step backwards, but it does to me show it is also all of this is sort of a sign of rising anxieties. I totally think it's rising anxieties. Yeah. I could have done my whole segment on this, but you know, now Sorry. we've talked about it, so I can't. Right. But okay, so there's something else I wanted to talk about, sort of switching gears. We were able to get a press copy of this new documentary called The Conservation Game. And you can follow along and look at it for yourself at theconservationgame.com. They also say there where they're, where they're showing it. It's showing at a lot of different places. And we actually first learned about this because someone we're friends with, Carney Ann Nasser. Is it Nasser? I think it's Nasser, right? Yeah, Nasser. Yeah, Nasser. Carnia Nasser, who's an animal law. We're not that close friends. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but she's like in the community. I went for a jog with her once in New Orleans. Yeah, no, we we met her many years ago and just loved her. And, you know, we haven't stayed in touch that much, but it was exciting that she was in this movie. She is she is a lawyer and she has focused her whole practice around so-called exotic animals, you know, uh, the big cats and other animals like that. She's also the founding director of the Animal Welfare Clinic at Michigan State University Law School. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, we were we were both excited to get to see her and say she was great. I I, I loved uh, I loved her parts. I I actually thought one of the reasons I really wanted to watch this was because I was wondering whether it was a good movie to assign or at least suggest to my students. And, you know, I do think it is because it really, there is a lot of uh, legal stuff, though there's also a lot of just, eh, it's not terrible on footage. You know, there's some stuff that you will enjoy, enjoy watching, but uh, but it's not like watching Slaughterhouse footage, really. The thing that was, well, it's not shocking to us, but that the level of it even was a little shocking to me. Because I don't watch morning chat shows very much. And uh, just the number of times these bozos have been on the Today Show and the Tonight Show and Jimmy Kimmel and all of them. And, you know, with these baby, baby, baby animals and spouting their complete bullshit. And what the movie did was it kind of tried, didn't often succeed, but tried very hard to track down what had happened to these little babies, which, you know, these claims were made that they were, you know, like Jack Hanna and all of the, the, these claims were made that, that they would be ambassadors for the species. And it was very implied, though it was all very bullshitty, that, you know, they would be well cared for throughout their life. And, uh, and of course, they just went into the maw of, of display and petting zoos and the whole horrible things that happened to these animals. Anyway, so it did kind of rip the lid off of that, which was good to see. And it showed really the corruption, particularly the Columbus, Ohio Zoo. They were just because that was where Jack Hanna was and they were just hand in glove with this stuff. And other zoos kind of like mouthing off about how, uh, you know, how horrified they were, but actually not doing absolutely anything about it. It didn't really disapprove of the whole concept of keeping animals in zoos. You know, it did sort of imply that good zoos are good. But so it wasn't perfectly in line with uh, the way I think about these issues. But it was I learned a lot watching it. And and I, I, I just hope that this will stop this crap about thinking it's OK to do this to these these tiny little animals. It's like they're tiny because they're babies when they're on these shows. So they can't hurt anybody. 
it boggles the mind that people still think this is okay. Like, don't these shows have producers? Don't they do research? Like, what the fuck? Right. And they kept there kept being this line repeated where like one of the one of the appearances, it might have been the one on the Fran Drescher show, which is a little heartbreaking because we love Fran Drescher. Yeah, she was working. She was working in a bridal shop in Flushing, Queens, <laughs> when her boyfriend threw her out. One of those, one of those <laughs> crushing one of those scenes. Crushing yeah. scenes. <laughs> what was she to do? I mean, you know, where, where, where well, was she? Well, apparently she was to go no. on television and tout like the abuse of tiny little beautiful animals. That's how she became the oppressor. Heartbreaking. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so she, we digress. Uh, um, it's a, it's an animal. Where's the mother? <laughs> so she did say, she did say, where's the I'm mother? Laughing. You're making me laugh at tragedy. I know. I know. Well, you got it. You know, you got it. So she was like, where's the mother? <laughs> and then they were like, oh, the mother's at some nice little zoo somewhere. They never named names. It was it, like, if you listen to it for two seconds, you would know it was bullshit. This was a baby, by the way, obviously just like the farmed animal babies who are killed and ripped apart from their families. These animals have a life of imprisonment and torture and are ripped away from theirs. Yeah, there was one segment where they they asked how old they were and they were eight weeks. And then they flashed to Carney Ann, who was watching the same footage that that we were watching, but, you know, within the movie. And and she said, they're not eight weeks, according to some standard. I mean, not a law, but some standard like eight weeks is the is the point where you're allowed to take them away from their mother to to put them on display or some nonsense. And she said they're much younger than that. And it turns out they were five weeks, five weeks old. Babies, really infants, their eyes were barely open. It was also, there was information on the movie about the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which has been doodling around Congress. And there was a lot about how much lobbying there is done by these these outfits and the zoo industry itself. Um, But it is, you know, it has passed the House and it's going to be up in the Senate for a vote. And it would outlaw a lot of this behavior, but which is reassuring. And I really hope it passes. But it's a reminder of, you know, they can't even pass this like it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Well, so it is not a cheerful movie. Uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people listening to this want to avoid watching footage and I, I it's not there's not like a ton of footage but it is kind of upsetting throughout the process yeah you you kind of see the horrible cages that they're living in and that yeah, sort of exactly. thing it's not like torture footage like you you know you can see in in well, it's, it's houses or something but yeah it's its own brand exactly i don't want to i don't want to treat it lightly but that being said again it's called the conservation game it's by michael weber and you can see it now. It's available at multiple places, festivals, indie theaters. Uh, and, you know, it's a hard it's a hard time to launch a film. And so we do want to be supporting the animal advocacy film. Yeah, and I'm hoping at some point it will be available for streaming or, or in some way. So I know I'm like totally all over the map today. But before we get to our interview, I since that was kind of a sad thing, I try to consciously, uh, you know, offset a sad thing with a happy thing. And so I would like to just briefly talk about something totally, you know, uh, self-indulgent in the sense that you and I went and had a really nice experience at this place that I feel like most of our listeners will not be able to go to and have the nice experience. Yeah, it seems very unlikely. We may have two listeners who will end up being being able to go. If you are one of them, let us know. But Marianne and I both recently relocated to Rochester, New York. 
uh, I am in the process of net zeroing my home and Marianne, you're going to be doing what you can to net zero yours as well. So we, you and I are trying to go on little mini trips, little mini adventures before it gets too snowy. Cause I hear it snows in Rochester. No, no, that's no, true, that's but... a myth. Oh, it's not here. Okay. So uh, you found a restaurant called Eden Cafe and Bake Shop. And actually, adorably, the URL is carrotdogcafe.com. I don't know if that was once their name or what, but like they do sell a lot of carrot dogs. And these these things taste like hot dogs. Like they have the same texture and smokiness. They don't taste like a carrot. They taste like a hot dog. So we we went out. It's a little, it's almost an hour away from Rochester in a town called Batavia. And it's kind of like this weird town that's trying to revitalize its downtown, but hasn't quite gotten there yet. But it's not like a falling apart town at all. Like there's a little bit of a energy there. They they decorated the whole main street for Halloween, which was pretty cute. There were a lot of people out and about. Most of you probably know this, but New York, up, upstate New York or Western New York, um, Western New has York. a lot of, you know, towns that, that have gone through some pretty hard times. So, uh, you know, it's nice to see a town that's like trying to like revitalize and yeah, they're, they're maybe halfway there. I was expecting this place to be this little hole because, you know, Carrot Dog Cafe, it looked like the menu was fairly healthy. I thought it was going to be this wholesome little, and it's not, it doesn't, not open that it's op- only open for lunch. But it's a bakery, too. And I just thought it would be this little hole in the wall, cute, you know, curtains in the windows, very, uh, I don't know, country country charm. And that wasn't it at all. No, no, no. It was like this kind of, uh, it was a restaurant inside this like sort of restaurant alley, Internal, like this inside restaurant alley that had like all of these different restaurants and a and a beer, almost like a microbrewery, I guess. Yeah, it was a microbrewery and several other restaurants. It was super loud because it was very industrial and like you know just definitely no. All of the sound was bouncing off the walls. I couldn't hear anything. But then there's this cute little vegan place called Eden Cafe and Bake Shop with these brochures that say vegan for the animals. And we went outside to eat because we're still only eating outside. And that was good because we could actually hear. Anyway, the point is the food. We got like sensational, sensational. And I got a bowl with a carrot hot dog on top of it. And that was called the South of the Border Bowl. And like you've got the fusion bowl. And, you know, we and then I brought some dessert home. And like, honestly, it was like phenomenal. It was very vegetable centric. And it was healthy, but in very indulgently healthy. It was perfect. It's my favorite kind of food. Well, I loved it too. And uh, I am excited to end on that kind of positive note before we get to our interview, which I think we should get to now. Yes, I think we should as well. Uh, Joanne Kong, and you're going to be excited to hear from her. She has not only spoken all over the country and in fact, the world on plant-based nutrition, her TEDx talk, The Power of Plant-Based Eating, has reached over 900,000 views on YouTube. And she is also the author of If You've Ever Loved an Animal, Go Vegan. Well, that's good advice, isn't it? And she is editor of a brand new book, which you're going to be so excited to hear about. So many new people to hear about here. Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. It's published by Lantern Publishing and Media, and she will be joining Jasmine right after this. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Joanne. Hi, Jasmine. It's just so great to be here. Well, it's great to talk to you. I'm a fan of your work and I've been looking forward to chatting. So first of all, congrats on your book. I am very excited that this is out there and I'm really looking forward to talking a little bit today about the book. Yes, fantastic. I'm glad to be here to share about this project. So I don't always start an interview with people's vegan story, but it seems like a good place to start today. So let's do it. When and how and why did you go vegan? So I have rather a long story, and I say it's long because I started out in uh, 1985. My husband and I first were vegetarian. And the way that it all started was we were in graduate school. We were living in Texas. And one day my husband brought home, I'm sure you know the book, it's called Animal Factories by Jim Mason and Peter Singer. And little did I realize that this was a groundbreaking and controversial book, which was among the very first to actually expose the cruelty of animal agriculture. So for us, it was really like an overnight awareness, kind of like a wake-up call. And after reading the book, which, by the way, had black and white pictures, we resolved then and there to no longer eat animals off of our plates. Now, during those years of being vegetarian, up till about eight years ago, when we went fully vegan, we would use egg and dairy products perhaps several times a year, such as when, you know, mostly when family were visiting or we had company or we were cooking for for other people. So, of course, looking back, I wish we had made the decision to become vegan much sooner, which is probably the number one regret that most vegans have, right? Mm-hmm. But I do kind of use my story as, as an example that for everybody, just as there's so many different life paths that we all take, the paths to going plant-based and developing compassion for animals, those paths are very, very unique. And I think back to my childhood when I was growing up, and I never even thought about what I was doing when I was consuming animals. And I'll oftentimes bring that up with people that I speak to. It's not like like I'm some you know expert or saintly type person because I'm a vegan. I simply went on this journey, and I think that's one thing that the book points out with 50 authors, everyone's story is so personal and very unique. And it's really 
for me, the journey was about really embracing who I am and making discoveries along the way. In a nutshell, that's <laughs> how my husband and I both went vegan. And then about five years ago, I decided, after all, I am a college educator. I need to get out there and educate. And I think I first met you, right, at Spokane Veg Fest? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say, like, I love that you use the personal story to elevate your platform and ultimately elevate the animals. I mean, that's what I'm most passionate about is using our our own stories in order to reach people. So how did you go from just going vegan to giving talks about it all over the world? That was quite a leap. I think it was just something that I know it sounds kind of cliched, but I think it was meant to happen when it happened. And I'm also at a place in my professional life. I am a university professor, but my schedule with my teaching is actually very flexible and it's become even more flexible in the past few years, which has enabled me to do a lot more traveling. And I love traveling. So I've been to a few of the Veggie World events in Europe. Have you been to those? No, that's cool. They're like huge trade shows and they're attended by thousands and thousands of people. I also spoke at the Veganist Zomerfest in Berlin, which is this huge three to four day festival. And another thing about speaking in some of these different countries is that my teaching as a musician, I'm a pianist, but I also coach singers to sing in different languages. So I may not be fluent in all these foreign languages, but I can certainly speak them. So it actually gave me an opportunity in Germany and Spain and France to give my presentations in those languages, which was a lot of fun. So it was also not only a chance for advocacy, and to see how veganism is truly a global event, but just also the chance to connect with other cultures and see that we all care about a lot of the same things. Well, I think that that's one of the most powerful parts about veganism, especially when you go traveling, doing talks, is like understanding that this very universal worldview that we share is in fact shared by so many people. And that is amazing for vegans especially to hear because it can feel very lonely to be vegan. But ultimately, there are people all over the world who are (laughs) fighting for this too. I would also say that in a way, putting this book project together helped me because, as you said, sometimes each of us can have days where we feel like we're not doing enough, right? (laughs) Or are we really push ourselves? I know you do a phenomenal amount of work. I don't know how you do everything you do. But I feel so supported and empowered and motivated when I see how the message is getting out there, how every all the advocates, everyone is doing such, you know, amazing things using their unique special gifts, whether you know, as communicators, event organizers, bloggers, writers like you. It's just great to always have that sense that you're, as an advocate, you're part of this great community. Well, and that's a perfect transition to talking about Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. So what is this book, Joanne? Yeah. So 
This is kind of interesting. I don't know if you, you're probably one of these people, Jasmine, who gets by on two or three hours of sleep a night, right? (laughs) Well, I I don't want to be that person, but the truth is sometimes I am, but it is mostly, it is mostly because I can't quite get a grasp of it. I'm not bragging. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, oftentimes if I have a, a, a lingering question or some situation I'm dealing with, there's this saying, sleep on it. And I literally woke up one morning, I hadn't been thinking about putting a book together, and the words vegan voices just popped into my head. I mean, that's literally what happened. It was sort of like something was telling me, you need to put this book together that represents vegans from all around the world. And they do say that the brain, you know, does a lot of regenerating during sleep. And I think some of the ideas that maybe we have in our subconscious kind of come to the front. So that's really how the book came into being. Um, I wrote to Lantern Publishing, of course, you know Lantern, and they approved the project. And it was about a seven to nine month process, reaching out to authors, editing and finalizing their essays. And of course, you know the process, putting everything into the correct format. So it was, a, it was a great way for me to get to know all these individual writers as well. A lot of them I, of course, knew from you know past events and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was a wonderful way I, I felt to also bring this, this sense of community together and to present the diversity and unique paths, as I mentioned, that people take. So that's really how it all came into being. Well, congratulations. And when does it come out? It just, did it just come out? They have told me they're starting to fulfill the orders that are going through so people can order. uh, If you go to the Lantern website where the book is listed, all the ordering information is there. And there's also information about a book launch party we're going to have on Sunday, October 10th, which is going to be both a virtual launch and an in-person launch party at Plant City PVD in Providence, Rhode Island. Have you been there? No, not there, but I definitely have been to many Matthew Kenny restaurants and um, my my best friend is currently in, in Providence and speaks very highly of that restaurant. Yeah, so Victoria Moran, who wrote the foreword to this book, she will be there. And portions of that live launch are going to be streamed into the virtual launch. So it's going to be a lot of fun and, you know, just, just a way to celebrate all the fantastic work that everyone's doing. Well, can you tell us a little bit about who some of the participants are and just what we might find inside Vegan Voices? Yeah. So what I did with this many authors is I grouped everybody into six different chapters. And I'll just give you a few examples of who is in the chapter. So the first one is called Our Kindred Animals. We have essays by, and I'm sure you know most of these people, Emily Moran Barwick, who whose essay is titled The Harm of Humane. Karen Davis, writes an essay called With Heart and Voice, Will Birds Sing or Will They Be Silent? 
Mary Finelli writes an essay called Swimming Against Ignorance and Cruelty. Uh, Ray Sikora writes an essay called There Is No Other. Those are just a few out of chapter one. Chapter two is Around the Globe, and we have some essays written by Shankar Narayan from India, who actually helped organize a speaking tour I did of India a few years ago. We have Ori Shavit, who I'm sure you know, who writes about the Israeli food revolution. And Marley Winkler gives a fascinating essay talking about her expedition to the heart of the Amazon. So that's just a sampling of chapter two. Would you say there's any overall themes in the book as a whole? Like, what are the themes that are covered? So some of the overall themes, a main focus was about the animals. It's about really advocating for them and motivating society to expand their view of what true compassion really means. That's a strong theme throughout the book, society needing to realize that there's this conflict, right? This cognitive dissonance that society can love some animals yet exploit others. Another very common theme is that veganism, of course, it's not just a diet, even though, of course, there are obvious health benefits, that veganism is is really part of a big picture. It's all about what does your life mean? You know, what is your identity? What are the things that are important to you? And it's becoming clearer and clearer, of course, how animal agriculture is harming the planet. Um, And just overall, a lot of the writers talk about how becoming vegan really brought them to think about how can I be the best version of myself, right? Like, how can I create the greatest amount of good and do the least amount of harm? Mm-hmm. And um, I think I spoke about a, a common thing of, of many vegans, and they a lot of them expressed this in the book, that they wished they had gone vegan sooner. And that sort of ties in with this this whole idea that for vegans, it's not only about becoming vegan, it's also doing everything we can to motivate others to kind of see veganism as an idea of universal inclusivity, if you will, where we do not see any separation between ourselves as human animals and other animals. And then the book, of course, shows the immense global phenomenon that veganism is. Uh, 16 of the writers come from outside the United States. They come from Canada, Israel, Germany, Brazil, India, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Norway, the Netherlands, and the UK. So in putting this book together, it's, I, I think it will give readers a really broad sense of, of the scope of veganism and the growing power that it's having as it grows into the mainstream. Well, that's wonderful. Um, and so I know that unlike a lot of the interviews that you do and a lot of the talks you do, uh, obviously our Hen House listeners are already vegan. So 
I would love to know from you who your intended audience is for this book and how our henhouse listeners can support you in getting the word out there and, and perhaps use this book in their own advocacy efforts. Yeah. In fact, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. um, so in, in terms of of readers who might be veg curious, they don't know what veganism is all about. I guess the first message that they'll get as they're reading through all of these people's personal stories, they'll see that there are many possibilities for how to receive the message. All of the writers feel a such a wide diversity of roles, whether as educators, speakers, writers, owners of sanctuaries. We have health professionals, nutritionists, and other food experts, athletes, filmmakers, artists, legal professionals, such a tremendous diversity of people from all walks of life. And I think that's one plus of the book is that people are receptive to different things, right? They're receptive to different kinds of language and different kinds of messaging. So I'm sure that as they read through the book, they'll find some voices that they resonate more or or they feel impacted or inspired by, perhaps more than others. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, I totally agree. As an advocate, I you probably have the same same thing happen. I mean, it's sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly how much of an impact we're having. So one of the purposes of the book was to present such a diversity of paths and messages that hopefully seeds will be planted in some readers who maybe had no idea at all what veganism was all about. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it's just a way of of providing a diversity of messaging. And also a lot of the writers talk about some of the challenges and the difficulties that they went through sometimes mm-hmm. pushback from family or friends various sorts of challenges along the way. So it also speaks to just kind of one's whole personal journey and how we're constantly, you know, learning how how to move through life. And you, by the way, do such a great job, Jasmine, with your Jasmine's Jargon column, which I love reading. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. Thank you. You're talking about newsletter. Yeah, it's something I kind of stumbled into and I, I do enjoy it. You know, I, I, I'm just imagining your book. I'm imagining vegan voices like sitting on my nightstand. I'm imagining vegan voices sitting on the nightstand of all of the folks listening to this today. And I think that there are like, we need to really take in and understand, a, you know, a global array of voices regarding veganism, because that way we're going to expand our own perspective. And also we're going to find friends and community in those chapters. And so you know, that's one of the most important parts of our henhouse to me is that blend of community building with showcasing different voices from all over the world. And your book is doing that in book form. So I just wanted to throw that out there to anyone listening to this for like, yeah, this book is going to help you with your advocacy, but this book is also going to help your own soul. You know what I mean? Definitely. 
Yeah. And I do want to give a shout out to Brian Normoyle. Uh, he's the VP of Lantern, who's been just fantastic with helping me put this book together through endless emails about all the zillions of minutiae and, you know, procedures for how to put this all together. And I'm just so grateful that there's such a publisher as Lantern and all the fantastic things that they promote. And of course, your work too. Thank you. So I think, like you said, this book is is a way to to keep that global advocacy and outreach going. And I'm mm-hmm. already lining up some podcasts and Zoom events with some of the writers abroad, including Nadia Makeshni, who lives in Japan. And then we have a writer from Norway, Elin Gunderson, who she is absolutely amazing. She and her husband are putting into place, hopefully by the end of this year, the first all-vegan grocery chain of stores in Scandinavia. Mm, wow. So what she's planning in May is a two-week tour of Norway where I will join them Of course, that's assuming it's going to be safe to travel by then, where we'll travel through Norway promoting not only everything and all the amazing work they're doing, but we can also promote the book. So I'm looking for more opportunities and um, just, just looking forward to seeing how the book gets out and around. Well, so, so do I. And I just wanted to congratulate you again, because you're not only helping us as advocates, but you're providing a service in giving us a little peephole into all of these authors, many of whom I haven't heard of, by the way. I would love to get some of these folks on our hen house if you ever... Yeah. Yeah. If you feel like if there's someone doing something very activist oriented, we'd love to get them on our hen house. We're really always looking for new international voices specifically to showcase. So that is super cool. So Joanne, tell us about if you've ever loved an animal, go vegan. As I do a lot of veg fests and and things like that, I wanted to come up with a little booklet. This is just a short booklet. It's like 40 pages. Just something that I could hand out to people to get them starting to think about the connection to animals. And what I did in that small booklet is I have different sections on different themes. Like one is about the earth, one is about compassion, another one is on kindness, another is about pets. And I would write a couple short paragraphs and then the facing page would have quotes by famous people or well-known advocates. So it's a super quick read of a booklet, but it's enough to kind of get some people thinking. And I've actually had a couple of people tell me that after reading the, the little book, they went vegan. So, Wow, amazing. Yeah. So you have always emphasized the animals as one of the reasons to go vegan, though obviously you also talk about the other reasons. Do you feel that talking about the animals is something that people are more open to or maybe less open to than they used to be? I think people definitely are more open to it. I will say that, and you've probably experienced the same at various conferences where I speak, it seems like the sessions 
that are the most well attended are the ones given by the fantastic plant-based doctors, you know, Dr. Michael Greger, of course, Dr. Milton Mills, Dr. Michael Clapper. When you go to NAF Summerfest, for example, those are jam-packed. People want to go to those. And that's fantastic because what better place to begin with than with your own health. But what I've also found is that even though people may enter the vegan path initially through health, something in that sparks them to think about the other aspects and open up their awareness to the other aspects as well, including spirituality. They start thinking about, you know, pets and other animals that are exploited. And I think, you know, whichever way you enter the path, I think naturally your awareness of the power of your decision makes you more aware of the plight of the animals. Of course, I wish there was, was a greater degree of, of awareness about what I call compassionate oneness, that we are connected with all of our kindred animals. But you look at just the past five years. I mean, look at how people don't so much frown on vegan anymore, right? I mean, is that your impression too, that there's more of a positive? Yeah, I I struggle with this, to be honest. I, I like, yeah. Now I feel bad that I asked you because I can't believe you're, you're asking me because I feel like... My- <laughs> I feel like, no, you answer. I don't want to. Basically, I, you know, I'm motivated by animals. And that is to me, like how I want to show up in the world, like doing the best I can, given, given the privileges, the lottery that I apparently won. But, and I struggle with the fact that people tend to be motivated by the doctor talks because I do recognize that it's like, I totally recognize why. And I, and part of me is like, great, just, you know, the fewer animals harmed, the better. And if people are going to be self-motivated and that's going to bring them to the vegan side, then great. But it, I feel like it can be a slippery slope into healthism, into anti-fat bias into like this diet rhetoric culture that I think actually really harms animal rights more than helps it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like there, we, Marianne and I started our hen house because we think that there is not one right way. There is not one right way to change the world for animals. We need a multiplicity of approaches. And so, right. and so here we are, but I don't know. I, I guess all of these years of doing our hen house and I just don't know, I want to tell people about animals, about what's happening to them. And I want them to then go vegan, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening. And so therefore we do need the doctors also talking about the possible health benefits. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think all of us, And this is, I think, so important for everyone who's just starting out as a vegan, realizing all the different opportunities that may come up for us to speak up for the animals. Just to tell you a little story, one of the writers in the book is Jeff Adams, who is a, he has Vegan Linked, which is kind of a resource of all these amazing videos he's put together. But I was traveling with him in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we went to a restaurant that did have vegan options. And I will say that our waitress was very helpful and accommodating and pointing out the vegan section of the menu, 
But she did ask one of the, those common questions, you know, the kind where you feel like rolling your eyes. She asked, do you eat fish? Oh my gosh. <laughs> to which Jeff replied very vehemently, a fish is an animal. We do not eat animals. You know, so there was an opportunity that he took to emphasize, hey, fish feel, fish are animals. So yes, the public still needs to be educated. We still need to do everything we can to speak up for them. There's no doubt about that. So what is your advice to people who want to communicate more effectively about going vegan? And I I just want to add one thing to that question, Joanne. This is like a little bit woo-woo of me, but like, I actually really (laughs) like your energy. Like it is so different from my energy. Like you're just, you kind of exude this like calm and this peace. And I feel like I exude like, insanity. (laughs) So I like, how can I be more like you? And what would you say is your advice to people who want to communicate more effectively? It's interesting. I have this impression of you that you're super high energy. You're very spontaneous, right? Well, yeah. I mean, am I spontaneous? (laughs) I I definitely have a high energy, but it's like kind of the flip side of my anxiety. And like, I'm not sure it's always a good thing. I, uh, so you know, like we should probably hang out or something. Cause I think somewhere in the middle, we would find this like really great yeah. like, middle ground. I don't know. But at the same time, I, I mean, I am just amazed with everything that you do. I mean, your writing is phenomenal. Your podcasts, every, you know, our hen house, everything that you do. So even though you have an impression of me as maybe being a calm person, which I am most of the time, I think there are different ways that people can be super high achieving, whether it's, you know, the, the high energy sort of way, or me who tends to be ultra, ultra organized, get things done early kind of person. <laughs> so I think that as long as the job gets done, there are so many uh, different ways of achieving great things. So yes, I do try to keep focused on one thing at a time. Although the challenge for me is, you know, thinking about the real world. And even though we have made a lot of progress, I I just think of all the cruelty out there. I mean, sometimes it, it really gets me down and it's sort of like I'll wake up and it's like, am I really making a difference? Do you ever have days like that? Oh, yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday Uh, was like, it was hard because, you know, and I'm speaking of Jasmine's jargon, I wrote about it. Like, it was just a really hard moment of like, wait, I think we can opt into hope. It is something I do regularly. I opt in. But what happens when it is removed for whatever reason, whether it be like a personal goal did not come through because of rejection, or maybe it's like a campaign we're working on for animals has a setback and it can really throw you. So I absolutely have those days. Uh, I've had those days too. And I think we just have to keep one foot in front of the other and just keep going. And maybe, you know, there's something better out there. You know, sometimes we don't see that, that what seems in the moment to be really disappointing it somehow enables us to go on the path we're supposed to be on, if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe there's something better out there. I don't know. 
Oh, I totally agree. I, and, and, and it does kind of come back to like, if something doesn't work out, try something else. And sometimes, you know, that, that can be the difference between changing the world for animals and not because if we get, if we let every setback hold us back, then nothing will get uh, done. Yeah. Your book wouldn't have gotten put together. Our hen house wouldn't exist. Like we, we kind of just have to keep going because what other choice is there? And I also tell advocates that sometimes the person you encounter who gives you the most pushback, I like to think of it this way, that the reason they're pushing back so much, so hard against you is that they feel something deep down inside, you know, something deep down inside is telling them, I'm not doing this, this isn't right. Something's not sitting well with me. So sometimes it's those people that will come back later on and be vegan. And in, in the story, I mean, in the book, one of the stories is written by Claudia Lifton. Do you know Claudia? I don't. Yeah, she used to be with Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, but she speaks to thousands and thousands of school kids every year. And she talks in the essay about encountering, uh, I think it was a, a teenage boy who, you know, was just telling her how much he loves bacon, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and after one of her talks, I guess she hadn't seen him for a while. Then she ran into him at another event the following year. He had become a vegan advocate. So you just never know, you know, where you're making a positive impact. And that kind of I guess leads to the, the question you, one of the questions you asked 10 minutes ago um, about how to interact with people. And I think it's so important, this idea of establishing a relationship. And actually, a lot of this I learned from the limited amount of, of work I did with Curtis Vomar. He is with Direct Action. He used to live here in my hometown in Richmond, Virginia, and he recently moved out to Berkeley, California. But what he he does through either through direct action or, or especially in Anonymous for the Voiceless, he has a way of connecting with people. He'll ask them questions like, what do you think of this? What kinds of things are important to you? You know, or you're you're starting to talk about animals and really engaging people in a conversation like, you know, what are your ideas about this? Where are you coming from? So that it's really a two-way communication as opposed to the so-called righteous vegan telling you what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think making that personal connection with someone, I, I think is really, really important. And another thing is realizing that for some, it can be a very long kind of decision. I mean, for my husband and I, when we went vegetarian, it was just literally overnight. We gave up eating animals, no problem. For some people, it's going to take a longer time and, and being aware of that, that you're just getting them thinking about some of these life choices that through cultural conditioning, they just haven't thought about. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important just to keep the messaging very, very positive so that they'll be encouraged to do their own research. And obviously there are so many fantastic ways to 
learn about veganism, veganism that are out there? Well, I have some more questions for you, but I'm hoping you'll stay on and we can chat about it for bonus content uh, because, you know, I love your perspectives and you have such a great, you know, such a great experience level uh, on uh, when it comes to changing the world for animals and really tapping into others who are doing that. And like I said, I'd love to interview some of those folks yeah. for our hen house too. So we'll, we'll follow up on that. But in the meantime, can you tell us, we'll just let our listeners know how they can get vegan voices and how they can follow you online and support your efforts. The book publisher is Lantern Publishing and Media. The website is lanternpm.org. So if you go on their website, go to the page for the book, and there is ordering information right there. And if you look under events, there will be information about the book launch parties coming up. So everything they need to know is on the website. My own website is vegansmakeadifference.com. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, and I just started being on Twitter. So I'm also a faculty member at the University of Richmond in Virginia, and I can be reached that way as well. We didn't even get into that, but maybe we can for the bonus content. So if you're a Flock member, stay tuned for the bonus content for Joanne Kong's episode. But Joanne, thank you so much for joining us today on our Hen House and And congrats again about the book. I'm just excited about all you're doing. And I look forward to staying in touch and continuing to chat as you continue to do more projects. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Hey, our Hen House listeners. It's Siobhan O'Sullivan here from Sydney, Australia, just dropping into this episode to share some exciting news. ASA is the Australasian Animal Studies Association. That's AASA, the Australasian Animal Studies Association. ASA has just launched two new prizes, which are open to people all around the world. The first prize, which is for the best journal article by an early career academic, is valued at 500 Australian dollars. The other prize that we're running in 2021 is for the best popular communications on an animal studies or animal protection issue. It's also valued at $500. To learn more about the prizes, go to the AASA website. That's www.animalstudies.org.au. And please don't forget to spread the word. This prize is available to people from all around the world. The only thing you need to do is be a member of ASA and ACES membership is very reasonable at just 15 Australian dollars for the unwaged or for students. Submissions close on Tuesday the 19th of October 2021, so get submitting. Can't wait to read your nominations. Anxiety surprising. All right, where do we hear this one? This is from The Guardian, which so often has so many excellent articles. However... This one is entitled, Food Myths Busted, Dairy, Salt, and Steak May Be Good for You After All. Uh, This is by Joanna Blythman, who characterizes herself as an investigative journalist. I don't know what she investigates. She seems to write about food. Uh, I don't know what she writes about anything else. Um, And she starts off by saying, over the past 70 years, the public health establishment in Anglophone countries... 
Anglophone countries, I guess we're different than other countries, I don't know, has issued a number of diet rules. They're common through like, is anybody following any rules? I don't know. Their common thread being that the natural ingredients populations all around the world have eaten for millennia, meat, dairy, eggs, and more. And certain components of these foods, notably saturated fat, are dangerous for human health. Can I, can we just hold the phone uh, for a minute? I, I agree that people all over the world have eaten meat and eggs, but they haven't eaten dairy. I'm sorry. It's just you guys, us guys, like Northern Northern Europeans. All right, I, I'll, I'll continue. The consequences of these diet ordinances, ordinances, what does she mean? Like, like who's writing these rules about what people are allowed to, to eat? They're more like advice, but anyway, ordinances are all around us. 60% of Britons are now overweight or obese, and the country's metabolic health has never been worse. Uh, I think, you know, I, I don't know uh, about the truth of her statistics, but I do know about the truth of her uh, causation theories. They're nonsensical. Um, she particularly hates things like salt-reduced cheese and skimmed milk to make foods healthier. Well, you know, I'm, I'm all opposed to salt-reduced or salt-enhanced or whatever you do with salt and cheese and, and skim milk. So, so I'll, we'll agree on that. The, the thing that drives her crazy here... The question that she wants to ask is, is is Mother Nature a psychopath? Why would she design foods to shorten the lifespan of the human race? Like, does she think Mother Nature is a real person, like, who's telling us what to eat? Like, you know, there are berries that will poison you. Is that a food that that she has designed uh, that we somehow know? Uh, what? <laughs> I guess she just thinks that because people eat these things, that means they were meant by somebody, Mother Nature, specifically to be food. I don't know. All right, dairy. Uh, and, you know, there are a million studies here uh, that she cites to prove her point. And, you know, as there always are, because these industries do a lot of res you know, research and they only publish the ones that they like anyway. And I don't know whether she's citing them correctly, but I'm not going to assume she's not. For dairy, this is what she says. A major study of 4,150 Swedes followed over 16 years has last week reported that a diet rich in dairy fat may lower, not raise your risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, all right, Swedes. Good luck with, with that. <laughs> five a day. You know, the five a day fruits or vegetables. She thinks this is like nonsensical. A slogan invented to shift more fruit and veg, but not one to live your life by. Apparently, she thinks someone wants, is pushing fruit and veg for, for nefarious reasons. And among the things that she points out is that uh, people will eat fruit instead of vegetables, and fruit is sweet, and it contains sugar, so therefore I think she thinks it's bad for you. A small banana has the equivalent of 5.7 teaspoons of sugar. She's eating much sweeter bananas than I am. Anyway, whereas an egg contains none. Uh, okay. Perhaps we should face the possibility that the five-a-day dogma has actually prompted us to eat more sugar because she points out that people aren't eating more greens. They're eating sweet potatoes and squash, both of which are as sugary as sweet fruit. I mean, I'm sorry, but sweet potatoes and squash, not to mention fruit, are really, really good for you. And you don't, uh, it's not like you're eating cane sugar, <laughs> but I digress. I'm not going to start giving uh, food advice. Don't worry. Salt, nothing to do with um, animals, at least. Um she doesn't think that we should um, really be minimizing our sodium intake. So I guess, you know, you're all going to die of 
blood pressure. I don't know. But that I'm not getting involved in that one. It's, you know, meat. That's more my that's more my topic. Ditch processed products such as hot dogs, but a steak won't kill you. Aside from the fact that it will kill the cow, which she obviously doesn't care care about. She points out that epidemiological data has been unable to demonstrate a consistent causal link between red meat and intake of disease. I don't know whether that's true, but I, I will I will stand by the principle that red meat is probably pretty bad for you. She just doesn't think that cholesterol is bad for you, so those or, or saturated fat. So there you go. Starchy foods. She hates the fact that uh, people are told to base your meals around starchy carbohydrate foods, and uh, it's just contradicted by science. Then she cites all this science. Um, the Pure study in February, huge study, and it concluded that, get this, quote, high intake of refined grains was associated with high risk of mortality and major cardiovascular disease events. Well, no shit. <laughs> refined grains is not the same thing as carbohydrates. Eat unrefined grains and all the other carbohydrates. Um Years of conflicting advice have been unfair to eggs. Eat as many as you like. She doesn't think cholesterol is a problem. You know, every once in a while you get these bullshit articles. They always have things to cite because the industry like provides them with things to cite. And it's, you know, it's kind of depressing. I'm not going to deny it. All right, what's next? This is from meetingplace.com. Preach it and teach it. This is from the For the Birds column by Christine Alvarado. She works in the poultry industry. She starts off talking about how uh, how that the industry, she's talking about her industry, isn't that good at communicating to people outside the industry. And so she has some solutions. And she starts out talking about uh, cooking, you know, how uh, you're supposed to cook to an internal temperature of 165 degrees Fahrenheit. And people don't know what that means. People don't know that it's true. People don't have thermometers. People do. All right, you know, and, um, but then she goes on to say that we should teach this stuff in school because apparently eating chicken is a life skill that people have to know. Uh, I know I have stood on this education platform before, but it is such an important way to reach out to our current and future, future customers. Yeah, they want to get in the schools. There are some teachers teaching incorrect information and all of a sudden she's expanding beyond the uh, that you should teach that you should cook meat to a high temperature. There are, quote, there are teachers teaching that meat is unhealthy, that organic is better, healthier, and that meat should be cooked until it, quote, doesn't bleed red or pink anymore. I don't even know. Like, isn't, isn't, is that wrong? I, I don't know. We cannot rely on these educators teaching incorrect and harmful information, things like meat is unhealthy, and still be successful as an industry. You know, she might be right. Of course, this is what she wants to do. Let's embed ourselves into our local communities and schools and develop fun around agriculture and learning for K-12. Yet there's nothing more fun than the poultry industry. I mean, it's just a constant barrel of laughs, no doubt about it. Some proof of that is from Watt Agnet. Expect 2022 cage-free mandates to disrupt U.S. egg market. All right, so these folks took this huge um, survey of U.S. egg producers. It was conducted by Egg Industry Insight. And according to that survey, 69% of respondents expect supply and demand in the egg market to be disrupted at least through April of 2022. 
And they're really upset because California, you know, this passed, of course, years ago, Proposition 12, and it's finally going to go into uh, effect uh, this cage-free mandate. And the same thing is happening in Massachusetts, where a ballot initiative was also passed. Of course, the, you know, the industry was given loads of time to ramp up the supply of cage-free eggs, but uh, apparently they didn't do that. Uh, over 69% of respondents expect the U.S. egg market to be disrupted for at least the first four months of 2022. 35% predicted will be disrupted for seven to 12 months. And, you know, apparently they didn't do, I mean, they don't think they did what they needed to do in spite of the fact that they had all this time. I'm sure they thought that they could get rid of this, you know, that, and they just haven't. And 26% of respondents expect there to be a shortage of eggs from cage-free layers in California and Massachusetts markets. That's not very high. 26% expect that. This would all be a good thing. If there's no eggs for people to eat, buy and eat, then they will come up with other things to eat. People are just such creatures of habit. But, you know, if you disrupt that habit, it could make... Um, so I'm all for this, but, you know, I doubt that it's actually going to happen. Uh, and we'll see in a moment why they are touting this. The challenge ahead for egg producers to convert housing, like why didn't they already convert housing, to meet mandates and future purchase pledges by major egg buyers has been described as, quote, financially and logistically impossible, unquote, on multiple occasions. Well, as long as they've said it multiple times, that would make it true, I'm sure. All right, here's the kicker. It is still not clear how much space cage-free hens producing eggs for Massachusetts will have to be given in 2022. It is actually clear. Well, it was clear because they did a ballot initiative and they had to have one and a half feet of, uh, of square feet per bird. But here, the Massachusetts Senate passed a bill on June 24th that will change the housing density mandate of the 2016 Question 3 law. Massachusetts is still operating under the regulation that all eggs produced and sold should be from hens with one and a half square feet per bird starting January 1st, 2022. If legislature does not change the law, just remember for a minute, this is a law that was passed by the people of, of Massachusetts by an overwhelming majority, well, at least a substantial majority. If legislature does not change the law, total chaos and massive egg shortages in Massachusetts are expected, according to Chad Gregory in a recent United Egg Producers briefing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Even the survey doesn't really bear out that supposition. And they're just trying to use it to, like, uh, get Massachusetts to change what its people have mandated. I hate these people. Did you, do, have you noticed that? Anyway, that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able... You can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course... Tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. 
Thanks to Lori Johnson of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.